Welcome to the Wild J Podcast. I'm Rebecca Steele, the Wild J Podcast Editor. And I'm Sabrina Jamil, a first-year Wild J Editor on the podcast team. Early on in the COVID-19 pandemic, healthcare systems facing huge influxes of patients and an increased need for ventilators were forced to seriously consider how they would allocate scarce resources in a shortage. States already had or started to create crisis standards of care to guide decision-making on how to allocate resources in times of emergency. But many of these standards explicitly discriminated based on disability. These standards deny medical care and access to ventilators to people with disabilities. YLJ Forum published an essay on this issue by Professor Samuel Bagansos back in the spring of 2020, but the questions that piece posed remain very relevant today. As hospitalizations rise across the country, medical professionals warn that space and supplies are running out. Professor Bagansos will be joining us today to share some insights into this topic, together with attorney Allison Barkoff at the Center for Public Representation. Like Professor Bagansos, Ms. Barkoff has been involved in advocacy on medical rationing and disability rights throughout the pandemic. Samuel Bagansdos is the Frank G. Millard Professor of Law at the University of Michigan Law School, and he specializes in constitutional and civil rights litigation. From 2009 to 2011, he was a political appointee in the U.S. Department of Justice, where he served as the Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, the number two official in the Civil Rights Division. His accomplishments include the promulgation of the 2010 Americans with Disability Act regulations and the reinvigoration of the Civil Rights Division's enforcement of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Olmstead versus L.C., which guarantees people with disabilities the right to live and receive services in the most integrated setting appropriate. Allison Barkoff is Director of Advocacy at the Center for Public Representation's Washington, D.C. office. She works on policy and litigation related to community integration and inclusion, including Olmstead, Medicaid, employment, housing, and education. She was appointed to serve on the Federal Advisory Committee for Competitive Integrated Employment of People with Disabilities and is a co-chair of the Long-Term Services and Supports Task Force of the Consortium of Citizens with Disabilities. From 2010 to 2014, she served as special counsel for Olmstead Enforcement in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, leading efforts to enforce the rights of individuals to, with disabilities to live, work, and receive services in the community. Ms. Barkoff also worked with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and with the Department of Labor. She has an adult brother with an intellectual disability and has been involved in disability advocacy most of her life. In May 2020, Professor Bagansdos published Who Gets the Ventilator? Disability Discrimination in COVID-19 Medical Rationing Protocols in the Yale Law Journal Forum. Professor Bagansdos' essay addresses rationing protocols arising out of the COVID-19 pandemic that deprioritize people for life-saving medical treatments on the basis of pre-existing disabilities and argues that such protocols are unlawful. Both Professor Bagansdos and Ms. Barkoff have been working on advocacy to address the issue of COVID-19 medical rationing advocacy. Professor Bagansos and Ms. Barkoff, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having us. Thank you. Professor Bagansos, uh, let's, let's start with the piece itself. The piece argues that a number of triage protocols adopted in response to the pandemic violate the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Rehab Act, and the Affordable Care Act. These protocols would potentially deny disabled people life-saving treatment, like access to a ventilator, on the basis that these resources are scarce and that able-bodied people should have the priority. Could you say more about what these statutes actually require and why these protocols fall so short of the mark? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and thanks a lot for hosting this podcast on, on this topic, which is, you know, continues to be a very important topic. Uh, so the ADA and the Rehab Act and the Affordable Care Act all 
cover slightly different things, but they basically have the same uh, the same uh, same requirements, which are that they prohibit discrimination against qualified individuals with disabilities on the basis of disability, right? So they're, they're disability discrimination statutes. We have in some of the protocols that were the initial target of the piece I wrote, explicit rules saying that if you have a disability of a particular kind, if you have an intellectual disability, um, if you have a particular kind of paralysis or something like that, you will either go to the back of the line for life-saving treatment in circumstances where the life-saving treatment is scarce, or you'll be, or you'll be denied it altogether. You'll, you'll be simply disqualified for it. So on its face, that is discrimination on the basis of disability. Um, and that was the initial impetus for, uh, for writing this piece. Um, now, in response to a lot of advocacy, um, a lot of states have removed those explicit deprioritizations or disqualifications, although some are still floating around out there, and have moved instead to more complex kinds of analyses that still build into them, uh, once you unpack them, still build into them uh, disqualification or deprioritization for people who have particular disabling conditions. And so the argument of the piece is that is disability discrimination that violates the ADA, the Rehab Act, and the Affordable Care Act. Um, and, you know, I'm happy to elaborate more, but on its face, it's just very directly discrimination on the basis of disability with the greatest possible consequences, right? I mean, this is denying people potentially life-saving treatment. So if on its face, these protocols are clearly discriminatory, what are the kinds of arguments that proponents of the protocols are advancing? How do they justify these protocols? Well, what they what they try to say, I mean, they, they try to say a couple of things. There's sort of a policy argument that gets molded into a legal argument. And the, and the policy argument is, is what's driving it all, um, which is this idea that, well, if resources are scarce, we have to do the most good for the most people. And you'll sometimes hear people who make this argument deny that they're making a utilitarian argument, but that's essentially what they're saying, that that what they're what we need to do if resources are scarce is get the most bang for our buck, get the most good for the most people. And the argument is people who walk in with particular disabling conditions um, are going to get less benefit from the treatment. And I want to be clear. This is people who have pre-existing disabilities that don't affect the ability of them, to, the ability of the treatment to work, right? So the treatment will cure COVID in them or will uh, will address the consequences of COVID in them just as, as well as it will for somebody else. The argument is, well, if you have a pre-existing disability of the kind that's identified or the kind that ends up getting deprioritized through our schema, um, we think you're, after you recover from COVID, likely to live for a shorter period of time because we think you were likely to live for a shorter period of time before you got COVID, or we think that you're likely to live a life that's of lower quality after you recover from COVID because we thought that you were likely to live a life that was of lower quality before you got COVID, right? So this is not about the effects of COVID or the effects of treatment. This is really saying that we're predicting that people with these disabilities would live shorter lives in any event or would live less 
high quality lives. And, and so, and the argument then, that policy argument then gets molded into a legal argument that essentially uh, hospitals or health systems get to decide who's qualified for medical treatment. Because remember, the law prohibits discrimination against a qualified individual with a disability. And they get to decide that qualified individual means a person who's more likely to benefit from the treatment in the sense of after they recover, live a longer or a higher quality of life. Now, you know, my reaction to that is a couple of things, and I tried to lay this out in the piece. You know, one is that, you know, just at, at the start, the whole point of the disability discrimination laws is to stop this historic practice in the United States and elsewhere of saying that disabled people's lives are of lower quality or less value. Right. And fundamentally, these arguments rest on that very premise that the disability discrimination laws are designed to overturn. But secondly, it's also important to note just, you know, aside from these, the normative question, just as to the empirical question, do people with these pre-existing disabilities live shorter lives? Do people with these pre-existing disabilities live lower quality lives? Well, as to those empirical questions, there's a, an enormous reason to believe that the medical system is just racked with systematic bias. And so the predictions as to the length of life that people will live with disabilities um, are likely to be are, are likely to be skewed by those biases to the extent that people with pre-existing disabilities are likely to live shorter lives are likely to have a shorter life expectancy that's likely because of a lot of discrimination both in and out of the medical system right we know it's been systematically established that that people with a whole array of different disabilities don't get as good medical care um, they don't get as good preventive care, they, and, and that is a significant contributor. Uh, they are denied employment opportunities and opportunities to live full lives in the community, which, is, which are social determinants of health that lead to shorter lives for people. And so, first of all, our predictions about the length of life are likely to be skewed. Secondly, to the extent they're right, to say, as a result of that, we're going to deny you life-saving treatment as a form of double jeopardy because it says, look, we're going to discriminate against you in healthcare. We're going to discriminate you against you in, in employment opportunities and opportunities to um, access the community life that everyone else takes for granted. And then when, as a result of that, your life can predictably be expected to be shorter, we're going to deny you the life-saving medical treatment that would extend your life, right? And we can make an even stronger point with regard to uh, predictions about quality of life. One of the things that's been proven over and over and over again in academic studies is that people who have disabilities rate their quality of life much higher than people who don't have disabilities rate the quality of life of people with disabilities. There's this inside-outside phenomenon that's been systematically established over and over again in literature. And when you have People who are likely to be non-disabled medical professionals making assessments about the quality of living with life with a disability, what you're going to have again is biases that end up denying people the opportunity to live any life at all, right? So again, just compounding existing unfairness. So 
that's essentially the set of arguments. Now, they get dressed up in a variety of legal terms, but that's what they all boil down to. Thanks for sharing that important context on the systemic discrimination that's led to these discriminatory rationing protocols, Professor Bagenstos. Ms. Barkoff, your organization, the Center for Public Representation, has filed several complaints with the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights regarding states' discriminatory treatment rationing protocols. So could you tell us a little bit about some of the more common arguments defending those protocols in that context? And in practice, could you speak to how states are justifying these protocols when you bring those challenges? Sure. Um, So taking a step back, I think, you know, Sam hit on a lot of the underlying issues that that really brought this to a head. Just to give a context, I think the reason it was so front and center is the disability community's longstanding experience with discrimination in the healthcare system. And it was truly in March as we were starting to even hear about COVID and starting to think about the crisis that people with disabilities said and predicted, we know exactly what's going to happen. Um, You know, I think part of what happened is there were a lot of states that had, and hospitals that had existing policies, um, and disability advocates and aging advocates and, and racial justice advocates really hadn't looked at those before. And so the first place we started was really dusting those off, and many of them were, as Sam said, really outdated based on these um, you know, assumptions about the quality of life of people with disabilities. And we actually have had kind of two tracks happening at once. Um, Advocates have been coming together. It's been led by the disability community, but been a very, very big tent of everybody who's impacted by these protocols that both have um, direct and explicit discrimination and these discriminatory impacts, as Sam talked about. And in many states, We've actually made a lot of progress really highlighting how these these criteria disparately impact disabled people, older adults, um, people from communities of color. And so while the story of the complaints is a piece of it, I think there's an even bigger piece about the success that we've made. And I think some of the early successes in states where they have developed policies really focused on equity and ensuring fairness and non-discrimination across the board really helped us in our advocacy with the Office of Civil Rights. Um, In the places where we have filed complaints, as Sam said, it's kind of been a two-step. We went in with the most clear and direct um, discrimination. We wanted to give the Office of Civil Rights, this was an area where Um, neither the Department of Health or Human Services or the Department of Justice that enforces the Americans with Disabilities Act had really ever put out guidance or brought cases. So we really wanted to immediately push for um, both some set of guidance and very clear precedent to get the ball rolling um, that could feed state-based advocacy with states. Um, You know, we have had some states that have been unwilling to engage, but I'd say overall, the the dozen complaints that we've filed, we've already been able to work with the Office of Civil Rights to resolve, I think, five or six complaints at this point. Um, And 
in those, they really have addressed the very things that Sam has talked about. The exclusion, what we call kind of categorical exclusion of people with certain types of disabilities or certain disabling limitations, we have across the board been able to get those taken out. So I think for the most part, we've really tried given the urgency of this situation um, to try to create precedent through these OCR complaints and resolutions and through state-based advocacy, and then really spread that across the board. It's not enough yet. We still have a lot of work to continue doing, but I don't think um, eight months ago when we started this, um, we could have predicted, I think, the success that we have had to date. That sounds like really impressive progress, both from the advocacy from your organization and, like you said, the activists on the ground and the disability rights community, broadly speaking. Um, to turn to the uh, Office of Civil Rights guidance that you refer to, we'd love to get both of your thoughts on the wording of that guidance and, and how it was shared and, and whether it goes far enough. So. The bulletin that they released on March 28th reads that the Office for Civil Rights enforces Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, which prohibit discrimination on the basis of disability in HHS-funded health programs or activities. These laws, like other civil rights statutes OCR enforces, remain in effect. As such, persons with disabilities should not be denied medical care on the basis of stereotypes, assessments of quality of life, or judgments about a person's relative worth based on the presence or absence of disabilities or age. Decisions by covered entities concerning whether an individual is a candidate for treatment should be based on an individualized assessment of the patient based on the best available objective medical evidence. So this gets at a lot of the issues you were talking about, but I'm curious about what you think about the formulation of this guidance. Do you feel satisfied with the summary of the relevant anti-discrimination statutes, or do you wish that OCR had taken a different position on this? I think it was a really important step for OCR to issue this guidance when it did. Um, you know, so Allison and I both have worked in government bureaucracies. They moved with incredible dispatch to issue this guidance. Um, and, you know, in a, in a circumstance when there was a lot going on, they were facing a lot of incoming complaints and a lot of pressures pulling them in different directions. So I, I give them an enormous amount of credit for doing that. It sent a very strong signal. I think one of the dirty little secrets about healthcare and disability in the United States is that people who run hospitals and health systems uh, have operated on the basis of the implicit belief that the disability discrimination laws don't really apply to them. Even if they know at some intellectual level they do, they think, well, look, everything we're doing has some effect on disability. We're always taking account of people's medical diagnoses. So how could it possibly make sense to apply the disability discrimination laws to us? And, you know, there are some older cases from the early 1980s that seem to say that. And I talk about those in, in the article that I published with you all and explain why those really don't reflect what the law is now, but I think they reflect the attitudes of a lot of people who run health systems. And so it was incredibly important for OCR to come in and say, hey folks, the disability discrimination laws apply to you. Hey, we even passed this law, 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, that specifically applies disability discrimination laws to the healthcare sector. And that means you can't just willy-nilly exclude people or deprioritize them based on pre-existing disabilities. 
You have to engage in individualized inquiry. All of that seems to me very good and really important. I think it helped to catalyze a lot of change. A lot of the advocacy that Allison was talking about, right, drew strength from and was able to point to that action by OCR. Now, look, I think we need to get more specific. I, I think that that you know that was an important step at a moment when things were really about to spiral out of control. It, w- it needed to happen. Nobody, I think, thought of that as the ultimate answer from the government. They need to explain much more. You know, here are things you can't do, and and we've started to see kind of a common law of that, a crete in the course of OCR resolving individual complaints. But, you know, it's in the nature of these kinds of administrative settlements that that doesn't get as widely disseminated as these guidance documents do. And I'll just add to what Sam said. I mean, we have to rewind to the moment in time in March. And I I absolutely agree with Sam that this was huge. At that point, I know it's hard to imagine, we were actually in legal fights behind the scenes about whether civil rights laws apply in the same way during the pandemic. I mean, that was a an issue that we were trying to think, do we need to do something with the Hill to make this clear? For March 28th, I think this was incredible and it really gave us what we needed. But now we're eight months past then. If we had to bring these cases into court, we would only have the March 28th guidance, which is just very high level principles to point to. We would be, I'd say, um, you know, laughed out of court if we were pointing to OCR press releases as, you know, binding precedent in any kind of way. And we have been working behind the scenes saying to the administration that um, there is a need, ideally, to put these in, in regulations in a more detailed kind of way. That is what would make a difference to us if we had to bring these cases into court, um, certainly to put out a more detailed guidance document. And, you know, I think we're all thinking bigger picture about what this type of discrimination in healthcare, we are looking right now through the urgent COVID lens, but healthcare discrimination is not limited to that. We face it all the time, uh, people with disabilities in situations like organ transplantation, for example. Um, you know, being able to make decisions in a healthcare context. And so if there are regulations that are going to come out, we think COVID can give the impetus, but we want them to be broad enough to really address the whole range of areas that I think we have been looking for the right cases and the right um, situations to really go into court and start building the precedent. I, I want to return to a point that Professor Bagenstos made earlier and that he writes about repeatedly, um, this idea that disabled people lack access to the decision-making processes that yield protocols like this one. So in your piece, Professor Bagenstos, you write um, that when government institutions make decisions that deny people with disabilities important benefits, we should worry that those decisions lack legitimacy. They were likely taken without the equal participation of those who are the most affected, and we should especially worry when the immediate consequence of those decisions are life and death. And this seems to be a recurring theme in our conversation today, this lack of access yielding uh, policies that are going to be flagrantly discriminatory and very harmful. So what I'd like to know more about is, is concretely, who is making these decisions, these decisions about 
for example, who will get life-saving treatment in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, you know, so there's a range of different processes, and I, I should be clear about this, but I think basically these processes are driven by doctors, bioethicists, hospital administrators, people in the medical establishment, the medical establishment broadly construed, so not all doctors, but administrators as well. Um, there are there are some places where they have made real efforts um, on the committees that develop the, these uh, crisis standards to include the voices of some people with disabilities. Um, and, you know, that, that has, that has worked to some extent, some places, not, not so much in others, but basically this has been a technocratic effort. So after the H1N1 pandemic, uh, there was a big push that was actually driven by the Institute of Medicine to say to states, look, you know, there is going to be a pandemic or some other situation where hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. And so you need to prepare for that. We don't want people making rationing decisions at the bedside. We don't want individual doctors doing that. So you could have said, well, one one thing we need to do is have a very inclusive process, a democratically responsive process, a process that includes in particular the folks who are most likely to be affected negatively by the decisions you're making. And most places didn't do that. And and so that that's important. And I think something to think about going forward. One of the points I try to make in, in the piece that's specific to the rationing of life-saving treatment or responses uh, issue is, you know, scarcity of ventilators or PPE is not a natural fact. It's not something that, you know, comes from God. It is a fact that becomes a fact because of social decisions, because of political decisions. And if you had a system that's in which people with disabilities were fully represented, they wouldn't at the same time make two decisions. One, not to prepare for a pandemic by you know, investing sufficiently in PPE or ventilators or whatever else you need. And two, to say that when predictably the pandemic comes and we don't have enough of this stuff to go around, it's the disabled people who are going to go to the back of the line and they're going to be the ones who are going to choose to die. Right. If, if disabled people were fully included in the process, what you would have is either a decision that we're going to fully invest you know, as an insurance policy against a pandemic, yeah, that means we'll have some excess capacity at times when we don't have a pandemic, but that means we'll be able to serve everyone when the pandemic comes. Or we would say, look, we get it. It's too expensive. You know, we're not going to fully invest. Some people are going to die, but it's not going to, we're not going to, we're going to make sure everybody faces the same risk everybody's in the same pool. That's the only way of making a decision to underinvest in PPE or ventilators or whatever, a fair decision. If what you say is we're going to underinvest and the people who weren't a part of the decision to underinvest are the people who are going to pay, like that's a classic democratic process failure. On that note, we'd like to address the fact that the issues we've been discussing today, as both of you have alluded to, go much deeper than the COVID pandemic. Um, Can you speak to how COVID-19 medical rationing protocols fit into broader on-the-ground advocacy on disability rights in more depth? 
Well, I, I think there are a couple things um, from COVID. So as I mentioned, you know, I think COVID has really focused on the discrimination that, that people with disabilities face in healthcare. But I think it has given us a platform to talk about discrimination uh, in much broader situations. You know, I gave the example of, it, it's shocking, but literally if you look at other life-saving treatment like um, organ transplantation, there are still direct policies that say, if you have certain disabilities, if you have certain underlying conditions that have nothing to do with whether the organ transplantation will be successful and whether you will live, um, those are still out there. And that's a place where I think we, we hope to push this forward. For the disability community, I think one of our top goals is um, supporting people to live in the community, moving people out of institutional and congregate settings. And COVID-19 has absolutely laid bare the risks, um, not just the civil rights aspects, which Sam and I have spent much of our careers focused on, but literally the fact that segregating people and congregating them all together is a death trap. And so I think for the first time, we have this momentum behind us to really change and restructure our healthcare system, our disability service system to move from the default and the entitlement being people who have significant needs need to be in nursing homes, need to be in institutions to how can we really build the supports so people can live in their own homes and participate in the community. So I think the glass half full that I am really looking forward to is how can we take this horrible tragedy and use that and change the political momentum to make the big systemic change that I think many of us for 30 or 40 years have been pushing for. Thank you so much for those really thoughtful answers. And thank you so much for joining us today. This is clearly a hugely important issue. It was critical when the piece was published back in May, and it continues to be a topic that we should all definitely keep in the front of our mind. Your thoughts today have really made clear and laid bare how this is this is just one particularly alarming manifestation of a much larger set of discriminatory practices that it's perhaps misses the mark to understand this in isolation. It really must be connected to so, so much else. And understanding it against that background is, is really helpful and insightful. But it is heartening to hear, too, that some real progress has been made these last several months, thanks in large part to the grassroots work of disability rights activists. Thanks so much. I really appreciate your having us on. The Yale Law Journal podcast is a production of the Yale Law Journal. Thanks to Ryan McAvoy and the wonderful folks at the Yale Broadcast Studio for making this production possible. If you like the show, don't forget to share it and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts.